I don't have an issue with it being reported, but like you said, then what are they doing with that data? Like, like what is it really accomplishing? It's it's not really protecting the share price. It's not really protecting the shareholder and and telling you know, oh, well, I don't know if I should invest in this company because they got breached or not. Is any company can be breached. Like we've been shown that time and time again, and <laughs> the government can be breached. They should know this. They have been breached. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore. Today I speak with Dan Creed, CISO at Allegiant. Even as a teenager, Dan was exploiting O-Days on a school's network. He since channeled his skills into security leadership, where he balances his technical expertise with business acumen and storytelling ability. He joins us to share his thoughts on supply chain risk and unpack the SEC's new cybersecurity guidelines. With the new SEC reporting guidelines being enacted, the stakes for CISOs are higher than ever. So who gets to define what is material? How does reporting protect shareholders? And should victims of nation-state attacks be held to the same standard? Dan, thank you so much for being here today. For the uninitiated, if you would, please introduce yourself. Yeah. Hi, I'm Dan Creed. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer at Allegiant Travel Company, known for our airline. We also have Sunseeker Resort, opening in Punta Gorda, Florida in October. Awesome. I did not know about Sunseeker. That's a great addition. So are, will you be helping with the elements of security with that as well, I assume? I will. It's run more at an arm's length entity at this point, but it is something that I'm definitely involved in and will continue to be involved in. So when we had our chat, we did a kind of an, an intro meeting and you went through kind of how you got your start and it, it started a long time ago. You talked about how you began working on an Apple II, uh, an O'Day, and a friend getting dumped. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I started in high school, actually. I was in high school from 88 to 92, and my junior year, so, you know, around 90, 91, we found a zero-day vulnerability in an Apple II an assembler and exploited that vulnerability to take control of the high school cable access television channel because a buddy of mine had been dumped by his girlfriend and we posted some unflattering messages about her on the cable high school television access channel. And it was at that point that the uh, technology instructor at my high school realized that it was probably better to keep me and my friends close at hand and channel that more constructively than leave us to our own vices. Yeah. So this technology director understands now that Dan's a special child and... Was there any punishment associated with this? Because today that wouldn't fly very well. But back then is a different time. How did that happen? Because that's a, I imagine there's a fair amount of energy around that. Oh, there was. There were a bunch of Apple IIs as well as our, what were new then, IBM business computers in which me and my friends had to go through and take the covers off, blow all the dust out, clean them out and do some cleaning. And then as well as part of our punishment for that year, we were responsible for maintaining the computer lab at the high school going forward. That's not a bad gig, though, overall. I mean, a little bit of blowing the dust out and then working in the lab. There's probably worse gigs to get in high school, right? 
No, definitely. There definitely are. And we had some fun with it, too, where, you know, we would have a regular uh, session at least once a week where we would have little land parties and load up Doom and Descent on those machines and have network gaming sessions and, you know, really early land parties. Doom was fantastic. I didn't have anything quite so creative, but there were these multimedia PCs a little bit after what you're talking about that were in our high school. And they had all these wonderful uh, videos and animal noises on them. Big, big deal. And uh, it was obviously a very quiet place. And we made right-click the elk noise. And they were amazed that even this simple thing, nothing as complex as what you were talking about, but just that that could even be modified. And it's very loud, right? There were, speakers were a new thing, right? And they really hated us, even just tinkering at that level. So how did you get into finding this problem within uh, Apple II, probably an E? How do you start there? Because the documentation in those days, that's not like what we have today. What got you started on that? Our technology instructor at the high school had been working computers for quite a long time and just through reading the existing documentation as well as just trial and error and playing. I mean, we were a real curious bunch that liked to figure out how things work and, you know, start looking at everything from source code and the class that we had been taking in particular was on assembler. So it was kind of a, hey, let's try this. Hey, let's try that. And in this case, the zero day was a buffer overflow that uh can't remember exactly who did what, but somebody had kind of uh like smashed down on the keyboard a little bit and hit a sequence of keys. And lo and behold, here's a buffer overflow. Right. You've just fed it some garbage and now it's done something else. Unexpected. So you also said it was very clear that just there was this, you mentioned it as a pervasive passion within technology. You did phrase it, I, I hope I'm correct here, even your first wife, which makes me think there now <laughs> might be others, but first wife, even an IRC. So this really was the conduit of your life in many ways. Oh, it was. I mean, I learned to type by typing in the dark because, you know, I was dialed into a multi-line BBS and didn't want to wake my parents up so I wouldn't turn on the lights or anything. That's basically how I learned to touch type. My first girlfriend all throughout high school I met on uh, online data systems, which was a big Galacticom multi-line BBS in Milwaukee. And then, yeah, my first wife I met on IRC. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's been a pervasive part of my life and a passion of mine for a long time. Yeah. So how do you keep, I mean, that's that's kind of the beginning. That's the, really the enthusiasts, the people that really made this a part of their, the core of their life. Um, this is now many years later. What do you do today to kind of maintain that same level of excitement related to technology as a CISO and and probably as somebody that's, you know, you have uh, interactions with people that are up and coming and, and starting their careers and getting out of high school or maybe out of university. Is there an analog for today for you in terms of level of excitement or is that changed or or morphed into something else? And I would say that it ebbs and flows some. I mean, first off, I gotta gotta throw some props out there. My first marriage was only three years, and I've been married to my wife Leah now for it'll be twenty years in October. So uh, having an understanding wife in this line of work, and it's constantly changing and pressure. You know, I just spent a a week at Black Hat and DefCon away from my family, so you know, having understanding and helps. But like 
on the technology side of things, I mean, I think that's one of the exciting things. It, it's always changing. It's always evolving. You look at what's going on in AI now, you know, someday there'll be quantum computing. And if you're a passionate person that really loves learning and learns fast, I think that's some of the most best qualities that you can have in an information security professional. You know, we get into this conversation today with a talent shortage and like new CISOs, finding talent and getting budget for them is often a challenging topic. And security people, there's there's a lot of debate on how do we train more. It's not really an entry-level position from the fact that, you know, in traditional IT roles, your Windows guy has to know Windows. Your, you know, Linux or Unix guy has to know Unix. Your network guy has to know networking. Your developers need to know, you know, particular application or language. Your security guys need to know everything. You know, they need to know the ins and outs of how to secure all the different OSs, network devices, apps, as well as then how they fit together and cross exploits and an exploit chain between those devices. So this is super controversial because you see both sides of this sort of pop up on places like LinkedIn. And I, I have probably a controversial opinion on this as well. I tell young people or people looking to change roles that Security is the worst place to start off, even though I, I love it and I recommend it for everyone to pursue if, if it's their passion. But I didn't start off in InfoSec. I did application support, developer support, worked in web infrastructure, was a sysadmin, then later on did app support, and then moved over into InfoSec. Now, all along that time, I was sort of you know dorking around with my own stuff, and we'd have these sort of nerd nights with my buddy Alan. and you know, understanding how technology works and undocumented features and how to tear things down. And so I have a personal challenge because there's many people who I know who got a degree in information security and started working in InfoSec immediately. And I think you have to know how to build stuff and tear stuff apart before you can really learn how to protect it. How do you feel about that? I mean, I would agree with that. I can remember in one class having to, uh, write a virus scanner and the before you can write a virus scanner the first thing you have to do is write a virus and you know it's a similar mentality to that but i mean i think you can start in security like if you start in a sock but even in that sock your function you should function more of in a knock role where you're getting a foundation you know or help desk or you're getting a foundation of a broad set of exposure to skills and technologies because you know as we were just discussing security isn't just one thing it's it's learning how to secure everything that's you know another controversial thing is you know do do security people know how to code i would argue everybody in it this day needs to code and i've seen people going both ways of you know oh well, you don't have to know how to code and like it's a competitive advantage everything is becoming code today you look at infrastructure as code, your car, your watch, you know, God knows cell phones, that everything is becoming code. And even with tools like AI, it's still not going to completely eliminate and displace the fact that everything is becoming code. And knowing how to code is a competitive advantage that's going to help you in any field that you go into that's IT related, because just understanding algorithms and scripting and all those things, the foundations of code are going to be there. You bring up a really good point. In the world of as code and sort of as cloud, 
adversary behavior changes, the way you support and build environments changes. In some ways, I feel like I'm even a little bit of a dinosaur talking about how things were, right? And how you would build something or even respond to something or look for bad stuff or, you know, troubleshoot an outage, whatever. All of that has changed uh, almost completely. Not entirely, but almost. And so to your point, it's a, it's a foundational skill set. I don't know that everybody needs to be good at writing code. I think it's important to understand how to automate things and how to do things at scale. I think that's the piece. How do you manipulate an object? How do you query it? How do you, you know, utilize a variable? You know, there, there may be many ways to do that, but scale is the important piece that in often code is the vehicle that allows you to achieve that. And if you're ignorant to it, it's going to be tough to add a lot of value, especially at a technical level, maybe even as a leadership level, too. I mean, if you're if you don't have that experience. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I, I completely agree with that. Code may be a little bit of strong, but because I think you're right, it's the scripting, it's the automation. But oftentimes that's accompanied with code and that automation is a force multiplier and understanding it. You know, that's one of the biggest areas of need in our industry in general is SOAR, you know, so orchestration and automation and AppSec. So. so I think many of the listeners know this answer, but I'm curious to know your specific reasons. Uh, maybe it's self-evident to everybody, but you mentioned SOAR and you mentioned AppSec. Let's start with AppSec. That's a, a bear of a position to fill. Why is it so important and why is it so so tough to fill and and what do you think we should do about it let's start there i mean what it is is you know in general being able to secure applications and that ties back to everything is code you know the web interface you do the gui all the underlying thing is code and some of the biggest vulnerabilities outside of people you know which are your biggest attack surface code is the next biggest vulnerability and people can tie into the underlying that as well. If you look at solar winds, you know, you had a people aspect of first, you had an intern that used a really weak password, but then what did they do with it? They went into their source code repos and injected bad code that then got distributed to all their customers. And given that you're seeing supply chain attacks, e.g. the repos and the code that runs your sites, it has the biggest force multiplication on not only risk, but like, especially if you're in a customer facing environment where you're a software developer, you know, I think about it from our own attack service, the mobile client that we push out to, you know, all of our customers that are using the mobile client, where if you've injected that now, now I'm installing software on other people's machines and services and thus spreading and propagating those security vulnerabilities worldwide. The asymmetric nature of this. And the ability to sort of compromise once and then affect many. I mean, the ability to either extract money from that, but maybe even larger to extract uh, intelligence over a long period of time is substantial. So, you know, again, espionage, uh, nation states needs, but also just even like a massive outage. And I, I don't think because we've seen success that it's going away. Oh, no. Definitely not. Like, I can give you a perfect example from recently, the MoveIt vulnerability, you know. Progress Software is a software development company. They had a zero-day vulnerability in their software. You know, thousands of companies have installed their software, and thus it impacted and, you know, spread to those thousands of companies. 
it's pretty fascinating how that has evolved and and how then we write contracts to engage with software companies in this example. But then you, in your role, Dan, you're still sort of responsible for the outcome of that software that's been acquired and used by your company. I'm not saying that it was, but in this general example, that's a hell of a thing. Your bad day still happens and they kind of had the mistake, but you're sort of on the hook for uh, the analysis of the problem and the response to it. And we just talked about the fact that it's very asymmetric, meaning there's a <laughs> there's a, a many to many to many kind of a relationship here. And there's nested dependencies on these things, whether it's a code base or anything else, even nested clouds, so to speak. You know, you mentioned a, a shout out earlier to Leah. That's a lot of stress that gets put on you to manage. And how, what's your coping mechanism for that, both professionally and personally? I know it's a very broad thing I just brought up, but that's where security is going. This sort of responsible for even more stuff, which means more stress probably for you. It is. And it's always, you know, trying to keep balance and perspective. We're all human. We're all fallible. And like that's why I focus more on detection and response time. But anybody can have a bad day and be breached. Anybody can have a zero day found. You know, people are human. They make mistakes. So. It's just keeping that imbalance and perspective of where you're doing the best that you can. I mean, there's risk in everything you do in life. You know, you cross the road, there's risk. There's a threat modeling aspect of that done, you know, subconsciously. So I just keep trying to keep a balanced perspective in the business is going to take on some risk. I, my job is to just make sure that I help mitigate that risk where I can to acceptable levels and where I can't identify, you know, where I feel that risk, the business is exceeding its tolerance for risk, identifying that and helping articulate that to give management better data in which to make that decision. But yeah, you're definitely right. The stress is increasing. I mean, look at the fact that this, you know, especially in those third-party risk situations, the CISO and CFO of SolarWinds recently got Wells notices. Yes, yes which is amazing. That alone could be its own discussion point or its own sort of show topic. The stakes are getting much, much larger. And I can tell you from someone who's done a, a fair amount of incident response and, and breach response, big breach response, the stress there is it's life-changing. It can be life-changing both in what you learn and also ultimately what your body does during it. I know that firsthand as well. So the stress and the lack of sleep and, you know, the stress it puts on friendships and relationships, it's very, very real. Despite all of that, there's still nothing else I'd rather be doing. And I'm privileged to be able to do it every day and talk with brilliant folks like yourself about these topics. That's great, great fun, great currency. I want to move to SOAR. I both love and dislike SOAR. I don't like it as a product space, to be clear. I think it's a feature that most things should have and not a thing that you necessarily buy. Right now, it can still be a thing that you buy and you might need to buy something. But I think it needs to be more of a mindset on all the things we invest in, in terms of response. But what's your take on sort of the mindset of SOAR? You mentioned you like detection and response so much. Do you have any sort of interesting philosophies around that or opinions? I mean, I agree with you in that I don't think it's something you buy because it all depends on what tooling you have in place as well as understanding that whole automation piece. I mean, there's nothing out there to really buy good automation that's just going to magically automate everything out of the box. 
you know, and if it does, is it going to do it securely? Is it going to do it while like there's so much more context out of that? But at the same time, you know, there, there's a huge shortage of people who have those skills. So there is a lot of perforation in the marketplace of low code, no code attempts to automate that. And I think they have their place, but I'm not a big fan of them in general as well. I want to find people that, you know, know how to automate things in a variety of ways. You know, maybe they're shell scripting it, maybe they're using Python, maybe they're using Terraform or Ansible, you know, it's using the right tool for the right job to give you the best security posture. I can tell you that there's another philosophical change where I think we focus too much on just the response piece and not enough on so the interesting piece of SOAR, maybe the more automation piece is in the middle of sort of the detection of things, right? And sort of how do I, how do I then pull together all the things I need to do rather than just taking a response action? My other sort of counterpoint to my earlier statement would be there are cases where you need to write a run book or a playbook. And if it's repeatable, there's help there. And maybe you don't have the staff to sort of write your scripts. Um, so you need, you know, but most... Most vendors are, should be open to that and provide solutions around it. I just see it as something that if you're investing your money in the right things and, and your time, that you should have capabilities that allow you to do this natively in every platform uh, in terms of taking response. There's different areas of maturity, of course, but it's, I don't like thinking that the only place you need automation is on response because there's all of this collection, there's uh, enrichment, there's understanding all these pieces of sort of before. I just saw a big push in the market where it's like, you know, just re-image a machine and cut a ticket and block an IP in that sore. And I, I think we're kind of fooling ourselves a little bit there. Another kind of jump off there. Let me ask you this, since you're a very technical CISO, what is your favorite? What's the most, if you're going to build a response playbook, technical in nature, but you've never done it before. What do you think should be the first playbook? What's the most common thing you can sort of on, automate in that space? No wrong answer. I mean, automating in that stuff, I mean, the easiest because it's already been vetted for you is automating, you know, feeding your blacklist and stuff from known malicious behaviors based on like reputational factors and that kind of thing, or, you know, monitoring your logs for brute force attempts and oh, okay like this is obvious and hitting those obvious things and you know at least automating the response to those as a first step because it weeds out a lot of the noise that that makes it easier to get into the harder stuff and subsequently automate and block that the other one and i i think it is just sort of the the phishing analysis and enrichment which kind of aligns with what you're mentioning too, if there's sort of known indicators to match with, sort of the loading and matching piece to it is usually typically, you know, step one of the early steps. And then sometimes I'm seeing growing effort in the space around DLP. So rather than just getting a blind sort of DLP alert, uh, really more from, from an enrichment standpoint. So enriching sort of a work package and looking for similarities or anomalies within that space to say, yes, it's a DLP alert, but where does it, where does this stand out from it? And then how do I enrich it? So maybe even a lower, a non-technical person can sort of manage it, right? Rather than a malware analyst or an IR person. That's, I've seen traction there too. Yeah, it's a good point of traction, especially given today's attack surface and 
I mean, in order for companies not to beat a dead horse, but to use Move It again as an example, it exfiltrated large amounts of data. You know, that that is a perfect use case for DLP. Yeah, yeah, based on volume. Yeah, yeah. Question for you, and I know this is going to be super random, but a lot of the folks I've worked with in technology, in technology, but also in InfoSec, some of the best ones, and this is going to be a little weird, but we're music majors. You were a music major in Milwaukee. What is it with music majors and InfoSec? I mean, honestly, I think a lot of it, because I've met a lot of, as well, really good InfoSec people that, you know, play music and started down that similar path as well and are very musical is a lot of infosec is pattern analysis you know and looking for anomalies in those patterns as well and music is a natural conduit for that it's all about cadence tempo and and when things in tone and when things do go awry you know and it's really noticeable of what in the pattern changed right interesting so being able to pick out what's different or to see something strange that's almost innate or in the foundation of these things. I never thought of it that way. I always thought it was more just, the, you know, music is pretty much math, but I think we're saying maybe the same thing. It was just an observation I had. And I think that I had someone tell me once that they weren't going to hire someone because they didn't have, they didn't want to hire them. They were a music major, but they didn't finish school, but they were a music major actually in college and they were in a band. And I said, that's, I said, wait a minute. I said, interview them. I said, there's this thing. So for anyone, any CISOs listening that's not privy to this, for whatever whatever reason, some of the best engineers and intrusion analysts I've met, strangely, were in bands. They did marching band. They had a they had their own band, or they were music majors. So for whatever that's worth, maybe the gem of the of the day for you. No, and like that, that's completely valid and like a real thing. Like I I would totally agree with that because that was me. I started, I did one semester as a music major and then, you know, kind of accidentally fell into my career when a VP at a consulting firm took me under his wing and gave me the opportunity. And, you know, it's it's definitely a real thing. I didn't go back to school until 2018 when I actually got my bachelor's and then in 2020, I got my MBA. So what what prompted you? I want to go to this this guy that took you uh, under his wing. I think that was at Computer People, right? Yeah, it was Computer People Unlimited in Milwaukee. That was eventually bought by CompuWare. So before we go there, what was the driving force for you to go back and get your, your undergrad to finish that up? Was it just curiosity of, of going back to school or was there kind of a, was someone in, in industry saying, hey, you kind of got to do this or was it just, you know, a personal goal? I mean, the big thing that drove me to it is just the realization that security people don't do a good job of communicating across all the business lines generally, and they stay focused just in IT and learning how to speak IT. And I wanted to learn how to speak business. Well, you know, the best way to do that is to get my MBA and to get my MBA, I have to get my bachelor's and thus it's spurred on this whole journey in which I really wanted to get my MBA because like, I love the fact now that like some of my strongest partners in our businesses, you know, it's our chief marketing officer and the flight operations people. And, you know, I'm a blessed CISO in that I do go to every board meeting and report to the board. And, you know, I can comfortably understand our, our 8K and our 10K and those implications. I can have, you know, conversations with our chief marketing officer about how the stuff that we're doing to prevent bad actors from using bots to scrape fraudulent flight data off of our 
off of our website is helping his marketing spend because our look to book ratio, which is essentially our customer acquisition cost, we get better metrics on that so I can help him more effectively allocate advertising dollars and and reduce fraud. You know, to, to understanding that a lot of companies, when especially if they're publicly traded, when they shift to cloud, they go from this, you know, really heavy CapEx budget to a really heavy OpEx budget. And if you don't prepare Wall Street for that, you know, the, the impact on your EBITDA can cause Wall Street to freak out. Right, right. Yeah. So you're no more depreciation, right? It's all just an expense. Yeah, that's huge. So that brings up actually a really, really another really great point is earlier in your life, earlier in your career, earlier in my career, I didn't give a damn about any of that stuff. It wasn't until I had somebody was like, hey, you should go into leadership. And I'm like, that's a bad idea. But then I I eventually got fed up enough where I, I thought, well, maybe I can influence some more. Maybe I can. But then when you move into that, you realize these shortcomings, or I did anyway, that I need to focus on being a better communicator and maybe being a better listener and understanding the currency, as a friend of mine would say, of all these other groups. How do they speak? What terms do they use? So I'm actually, I was actually, I'm very surprised to hear you to give the answer. And I didn't know that you, uh, that that was, that was the goal, a smart move. Randomly, I had a conversation with a friend earlier and uh, they were saying, hey, what was the best spend you made recently? I was like, you know, for a hundred bucks, I bought Grammarly and I'm not affiliated. This isn't an ad for Grammarly, but in terms of being a better writer, a better communicator, and it helps me with that. A small thing, but it's it's pursuant to the same thing, right? Be a better communicator inside information security. I love it. Uh, and you know, if you look in the airline industry in general right now, there's actually some really good talent in the CISO realms. And, you know, we talk a lot and we, you know, for a competitive industry, we work well together and we share a lot of intelligence. And like, even if you look behind the scenes at airlines, the fact that we shuttle around, you know, our pilots and flight attendants to make sure, regardless of what airline they are, that they get to where they need to go to do their jobs. But like at the CISO level, we all talk as well. And, you know, I've, I've had numerous conversations with uh, the CISO over at United, Denim, and her big thing is, you know, in the C-suite with the CISOs, you need to be a good storyteller. And, and the CISO of Delta is very big on security culture. And I'm very big on, you know, you need to take those two components as well. And then be able to speak across the business lines and how that fuels both of that. And I'm doing a talk in, at the Aviation Summit next month here about that. So like we, we have a lot of collaboration and I think at least within our industry, those soft skills and that storytelling and and creating a good security culture and awareness and working with the rest of the business units is, is we've been truly blessed in, as an industry to have some real leadership there. Which of those two do you think is more difficult? If, if you had to start with one, is it culture or storytelling? If you don't have the resources to get good at both at the same time. Which one is harder would be a tough question because they're, it depends on the person and what you're good at. Some people are terrified of public speaking and storytelling and, and that kind of. So for them, it's going to be a weakness. So I would say it really depends on the purpose now and the person but like if you look at the business which one's more important you know i would have to say everything starts with culture but building a security culture is hard as well so you have to have storytelling in that too to convince the business to invest in that because a lot of times 
it's hard for people to understand that. One of the unique things we're doing is we're building that culture by building out security KPIs that are monitoring everything from down to the individual employee level, you know, how they do with phishing as far as reporting random real phishing attacks versus, you know, our simulated phishing training campaigns, how they do on their uh, annual security training and, you know, regular updates to that, as well as sending out security awareness culture surveys of tits and tidbits and, and different things to track their security awareness level. And we're taking those KPIs and rolling them all the way up to our leadership and our VP level, where if, you know, as a department, they're not hitting those metrics, you know, for a meets or exceeds, it's impacting their bonus pool negatively as opposed to positively. Wow. Wow. So it's almost like an NPS for security in a way. Well, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's one way. If you are affecting someone's bonus or budget, that'll get people's attention for sure. But that also takes, back to storytelling, that takes influence. Not every company is going to adopt that out of the gate. That's a big lift. Yeah, it is. Like I said, I'm blessed to have a very security conscientious board and leadership at Allegiant that were willing to take that lift. And I have a lot of respect within the org, which you know I really appreciate. And I couldn't do this job as well as I do without it. You mentioned 10Ks and reading the reports that are Fallen to anyone who's publicly traded, you reminded me of something. I wasn't going to go down this path, but the concept of what's material and then the percentage, some different different groups measure it in different ways. So what is material? And material is, you know, how much it may influence the mind of the potential investor. And then, but what is the percent of measurement that actually might do that in terms of, let's say, revenue? That's a very complicated thing. And then you have, uh, you don't have to announce within four days, but four days of the incident, but but four days of it identifying that it's material. What do you think about all this? I mean, I think there's a lot of political optics involved in the way that it was done. I mean, first off, like if anyone from the SEC is listening, I'm fine with this. But to be critical, like the way that it's been written thus far and there's no like these are the final rules copy, but more of your commentary of like, this is what was proposed. This is the comments we got back and then trying to piece together from narrative as well. Well, this is what based on those comment pieces and parts we're doing. It's 187 pages that if you don't read it all, you lose context. And, you know, that's proven. I've seen articles in Forbes magazine that, you know, got stuff on there that's like blatantly wrong because they clearly, you know, either misinterpreted something or didn't read all 187 pages because it's so poorly organized. So there's a lot of confusion around it. But, you know, as a whole for the industry, I think there are things that are good. And I think there are things that are going to need to evolve in, over time. And as you mentioned, materiality is one of them. You know, there, there's no guidance. They specifically refuse to give guidance on it. And materiality comes from context. Is it number of customers? Is it number of employees? Is it number of uh, records? Is it dollar value? You know, the best guidance I think we have at hand would be to follow along socks and try and apply some formulaic reasoning to it along materiality for what we consider for socks and in the lack of guidance that we have. But 
I think there's a lot of flaw in that too, because it doesn't account for third-party risk and third-party breach. Like, how do you factor that into it? Yes, sir. You hit it right on the head there. You hit it right on the head. Sorry to interrupt, but I I have to give you a shout out on that one because that is a big, big deal. We just talked about third-party risk and supply chain. How does that apply? Well, and it's also like, then I look at the whole context of now, like Wells notices going out and that kind of stuff. And I think it's a little bit misconstrued in that, you know, if you're targeted by a nation state and whatnot, SolarWinds was targeted by nation state Russia. And here now we're punishing the victim of a crime. And we're doing so with, you know, vehicles that were designed for Ponzi schemes and cooking the books and like blatant insider threat. But here you were breached by an outside state level org and you're giving the same kind of punishment path to the victims of that crime. Like, they're like, I do not feel the SEC did a very good job of really engaging and having a well thought out conversations with the experts as as much as they should have, as opposed to discussing it amongst the politicians. You mentioned third party risk, supply chain, and now you mentioned nation state. I have a very strong opinion on this as well, where individual corporations are left to attempts to defend against espionage effectively. And if they fail at that, now there's all these downstream issues. If the government fails at that, which they have, there's no consequence. How does that make any sense? It doesn't. And like that that's another caveat to the SEC rulings that frustrate me the most. Just you're trying to force the CISO and the company to deal with security, but like let's say even say, you know, with the SEC you know, there's a lot of controversy of does the board have to have cybersecurity experience or not? And ultimately, they rolled away from that. But like, even if you do give your CISO a board level position, board level directors are largely incentivized and compensated via equity. So there's a vested interest in protecting the share price. And now when you give no guidance of materiality as well and leave that open to the wild, wild west, like that's the biggest flaw is you like, if you really want to solve this problem, you need to define what's material, because if not, you're leaving it to a room full of people in which, you know, your your board is multiple voices who are all incentivized to protect share price. Well, not only that, but now you have this, you run the risk. If you don't have a pre-baked response plan, if you don't have a box that you can put these incidents into, maybe a breach, whatever it may be. These situations, if they don't fit into something that you haven't discussed ahead of time, you are going to just end up with a bunch of really internally pissed off people, board members, counsel, privacy officer, risk off. Like, you're going to find a bad thing and you're going to try to put handles on that and then try to have these conversations because there's so many questions around it. You're going to do nothing but get slapped. You say, we've got to figure this out in four days. Good luck. Oh, yeah. Like the the four days is completely ridiculous. But like, it's interesting to see you mentioned the government, you know, and how that there's no consequences to them. And like, I agree with that. Like, and for whatever reason, we've seen this mad rush lately out of the government to do stuff quickly rather than well thought out. In the airline industry, we're seeing the same thing coming out of DHS and the TSA where, you know, they're demanding stuff and they're demanding it within 30 days. For example, one thing that just blows my mind is they got this idea together and they did an executive action on it in which 
they wanted every single airline and airport in the country to submit to them a list of all critical systems, you know, with serial number, physical address where it's located, who the owner is, their full legal name and their full address, as well as the cybersecurity owner and their full legal name and full address. And it, it was the airline industry that had to finally push back and say, wait a minute, like, this is just crazy. First off, you want them in sent in whatever format, including like password protected Excel files, which isn't fair. And now you're creating this national gold mine that essentially tells, you know, anyone who breaches you, literally every single airport and airline where their critical systems are down to the physical location, IP address and serial number and manufacturer, like. Even DOD doesn't ask for that. We should have the records and they need to be available for inspection upon request. But like there's value in not forcing us to create a centralized government repository there. And, you know, they did come back with some reasonableness, but it took a lot of pushing across the industry to get them to do so because they're moving so quickly and without adequate interaction and conversations with larger swaths of the business that some of the stuff comes out half-baked initially and it's just creating a lot of churn and a lot of pressure and chewing up a lot of time when they ask for this stuff in 30 days and you have to push back you know it's great that they're more reasonable than they have been in the past but like still puts a lot of stress on everybody in this industry the other thing i want to go back to is with the sec and the reporting you know the whole issue there is they want to make sure that the shareholder is informed. And I get that. But and in a lot of ways, I, I applaud them for putting this together. I think it could have been a lot better to your point, but I don't know that it's all bad. My other issue is, though, is if you submit this back to storytelling, back to sharing information, nothing's going to get done with this information. Like, it's not like anybody's going to overlook this info and see, hey, like, what are the trends with this information? What are the common attacks? Like, how can we better protect ourselves? Like the SEC is not managing any of that. And I don't know that they should, but at the point that we're going to report this stuff, isn't it kind of a shame that it's not being actually used for anything other than protection of, of resources, share price? I mean, does that bug you or is that, or am I off on the wrong path? I feel like that information should be, I don't know, that we should use that opportunity if you're going to collect it. Yeah, I mean, I think that you should to some extent, but it's it's hard to solve. Every business is unique and different. And, you know, say you get hit by a breach and you report that. How's that any different than if you get hit by a hurricane or a warehouse for Target lights up and goes on fire? You know, it, it's a risk that exists. Do you report it because it's material? Yes. Does it change the share price? Maybe for a cycle or two, but like, even with something as you know nefarious as cybersecurity risk, at, at the end of the day, it's no different than somebody breaking into your warehouse and burning it down. And people forget really quickly. I mean, Target's been breached. Lowe's has been breached. I mean, major retailers all over have been breached. And you know what? They're still in business and their share prices is recovered. So like this whole notion that like this is going to protect the shareholder is a bit crazy to me and that it's not going to protect them any more than, you know, putting in your 10K of, yeah, we had a warehouse burned down. And, you know, that's why, like, I think the dollar value and of the assets and that kind of stuff is important. And I don't have an issue with it being reported, but 
like you said, then what are they doing with that data? Like, like what is it really accomplishing? It's it's not really protecting the share price. It's not really protecting the shareholder and and telling you know, oh, well, I don't know if I should invest in this company because they got breached or not. Is any company can be breached. Like we've been shown that time and time again, and <laughs> the government can be breached. They should know this. They have been breached. And they may get breached again, back to your example, on a solar winds kind of level. They might get breached and not have done anything wrong other than sign a contract with the wrong company. And that to me is interesting. I think the thing I would want to see is number one, if this information is collected, how, do, how can we use it in aggregate? to make, and then how over time do we identify what's material? Like literally based on what are business accepted measures? So is it one half percent to 2% of revenue, which is, you know, kind of socks level of material, right? Is that it? Is it something else? And then how do we count that? So how do we count it? How do we use that information? And then do we have better conversations with our executive leadership that are now concerned about it? Because now they have to sign off on it. It's going in the 10K, at least in the 10K. Uh, they may have to do an out-of-cycle uh, reporting notice. But also then, what conversations lead up to that and after it, right? So do we have better communication between our external auditor who has to sign off on it, our council, board, all that, right? So is there, is there, does it force security teams to get better at that communication? And the answer is yes, right? It just, the question is now, how do we do that? Yeah. And, you know, that is one of the exciting things personally that I think is it will help drive better communication in that, but it's going to take time. You know, that's one of the things I'm excited about, but it's also one of the things I'm frustrated about. It's like, then before you did this, why didn't you engage wider swaths of the industry and do this in a more measured approach than as quickly as government, which moves typically really slowly? And, you know, this has gone quicker than average. They, they've tried to bring it up a couple of times and it got, it got sort of squashed every time. And so it's had different versions. I think what's going to happen is, is over time, they will add back in some of the stuff they've actually pulled out as, as we move forward. I think they're only going to add to this is my assumption. I would think so too, because it's going to be like socks. I think it's going to be an evolving thing that, you know, over time and more context They'll come up with some things that to help better determine materiality and they'll put things back in that maybe they determined, you know, needed to be taken out for the initial run of this. But but it's it's all an interesting thing. You know, it's kind of like that debate of, you know, should the CISO be on the board? Should he report to the CEO? Should he report to the CIO that, you know, at the end of the day, it's kind of accountability and risk and like. You know, the, I was looking at a study recently that, you know, a few boards, you know, very few boards of the Fortune 500 list the CISO as, you know, a top level executive. You know, only th I think it was five have CISO on the board or as a named executive. And you've seen this evolve over time, too. No companies used to have CIOs on the board or named executives either. And you're seeing more and more do. And like there's a much larger base of companies that have CIOs on their boards or as named executives, because the company has realized that the risk is there. Like if my IT systems are down, the impact to my business, you know, especially from a financial standpoint is, is ruinous. And I think we're finally starting to see more and more that security is in that same boat because 
ransomware is a perfect example. You know, if you get hit by ransomware and they encrypt your systems and they're offline, I've seen companies that have been hit by ransomware that have been impacted and essentially most of their IT function shut down in systems for not only a week, but some as long as a month or more. That, you know, is absolutely just as devastating to the business and definitely as big a risk as your CIO has. So, you know, maybe maybe this continues to evolve where there's some recognition at some point that your cybersecurity risk is just as great financially and materially to the organization as the whole IT risk is. You know, it's where it's today viewed as a subset of that risk. It's really kind of its whole own animal risk at an equal level. Absolutely. And this all kind of, again, talk about material. What if your business doesn't work for, you know, two weeks? What if you shut down for two weeks? That's fairly material. That moves the needle, right? You're not, you're not producing. On my industry, if you shut down your systems for two weeks, you're not, you know, flying planes. And like, we've had interesting conversation around that. Like, if all of our IT systems went down or, you know, all of the critical ones, could we operate manually? And if so, for how long? And, you know, these are conversations that we're having. Yeah. In your world. Yeah. I misspoke. I ignorantly misspoke. In your world, it's, it's minutes. It's minutes. It's not days. It's not hours. Right. Oh, and ours is like still not even as bad as if you look at like hospitals and I mean, you can immediately impact and end lives. Yeah. It's like I said, when at the very beginning, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing, but uh, it does come with the stress and urgency and it's even getting seemingly worse. Question for you. And we end every show on this. We've uh, actually, I was going to had a lot of other things to, to cover, but we filled our time pursuant to the name of our show, the new CISO. Dan, what does being a new CISO mean to you? I mean, like anything in this industry, it's growing, keeping up with the times, changing, evolving, further refining my skills and ability to talk to business language and speak to the business. If you haven't read War IT Peace, I strongly suggest you do. You know, and just to end this out, a special shout out and thanks to my wife and my family for putting up with me when I do get stressed and all the travel that I've had lately. That's a, a wonderful acknowledgement, and I thank them as well, not only uh, for the support they give you, but also for um, you giving uh, the time and, and uh, indirectly them. So thank you so much for being a guest on our show today. I've enjoyed our, our chat, and the community appreciates it. Thank you, Dan. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.